Good day, and welcome back to Latin 3 from the Church of St. Agnes. Today we're exploring the grammar contained in Unit 26 of the Collins book, starting on page 222. As usual, uh, Collins has a potpourri of grammatical structures in this particular unit, and um, I'm going to take them in a very different order from the one he presents. I think it's a bit more logical to do it this way. So we will begin today on page 225, talking about interrogative pronouns. This is a relatively simple uh, piece of grammar, the interrogative pronoun. You might remember that interrogative means to ask, rogo in Latin, rogo rogare means to ask. An interrogative pronoun is a pronoun that asks a question. In other words, in English, who or what. And it's plural forms um, in singular and plural. And here you see on page 225, the um, singular forms of the interrogative pronoun quis quid. Quis standing for masculine and feminine, quid the neuter. So you can see going across, it's quis quid, cuius cuius, qui qui, quem quid, quo quo. Um, and uh, obviously in the nominative, it means who or what. In the genitive, uh, when it's referring to a person, the easiest way to uh, re remember that or translate that is by the word whose in English, or you could say of whom or of what, but whose is a good way to translate it. Cui in the dative for whom or for what, two or four. Quem, of course, or quid in the accusative, whom or what. And then quo as um, required by an ablative, preposition, or some such. The plural are identical with the forms of the interrogative adjectives which are presented back on section 53 in your book. So it's pretty simple, it's pretty straightforward. You can finally ask a who or what question uh, in the book now with Collins. Uh, take a look at the examples there, a few of them. Quis me vocat, who is calling me, right? Cuius liber es, there's that cuius. Whose book is this? This is the book of whom? Whose book is this? A quo Jesus traditus est. Uh, by whom? There's the a plus the uh, ablative. By whom was Jesus betrayed? Qui sunt he Christiani? Who are these Christians? You see in each one, we're asking a question. That's why it's called the interrogative. Take a look at that last example. Qui buscum Jesus Pascha Manducavit. With whom did Jesus eat the Paschal meal? Notice we have quibus cum. When you have a cum, we could have said cum quibus, but Latin doesn't like to do that. It likes to make that cum enclitic and attached to the pronoun. So it's like vobis cum and so on, quibus cum. With whom did Jesus eat the Pasch or the Passover? Okay, so that's very straightforward and um, shouldn't present for you any real difficulties. Um, on the next page, 
uh, Collins introduces or includes another little tidbit, which he calls the adverbial accusative. And as he says there, certain neuter pronouns and adjectives occur, occur in the accusative case with an adverbial force. Um, in most of these cases, uh, what we have going on here is what is called in Latin or in Greek an accusative of respect or specification. Uh, take a look at uh, really number one uh, is not really um, a very good example of this. Quid. Why did they enter or come into the city? But take a look at uh, number the second example. Ili legem nihil faciunt. Ili is obviously the subject. Faciunt is the verb. And then we have legem nihil. Well, they say, well, what's that nihil doing there? Well, those people, those men, do the law nihil in respect or in specification, in respect to nothing. So that's how this adverbial accusative works. In other words, those people do not keep the law at all. They do not practice the law in any respect whatsoever, in respect to nothing. Um, uh, quote C, uh, he calls that an adverbial accusative, the quote, but quote C is really an idiom in Latin. Whenever you see it, quote C, it means but if. Um, and that's, that's just the best way to remember that. Uh, take a look at the last one. This is another good example of what he calls an adverbial accusative. Semper gaudio quonium omnia fideles remanetis. Always I rejoice quonium because omnia fideles remanetis. The verb remanetis. You are remaining fideles, faithful, and then we have omnia standing out there in the accusative. How do you remain faithful? In respect to all things. In respect to all things. In all respects, you remain faithful. That's why I always rejoice. So those, uh, I wouldn't worry too much about the adverbial accusative. Watch for it, uh, particularly with nihil. Um, but uh, when you see it and you see an accusative standing out there, uh, by itself, uh, and it refers to something in respect or uh, uh, in connection with um, the sentence as a whole, then suspect this accusative of respect. Uh, not a major point of grammar. So those two pieces are pretty straightforward. Now let's go back um, to page 2. 23, and there's another fairly straightforward piece of grammar in section 137. Um, and these are what Collins calls, of course, direct questions. Now, we know what a direct question is. Um, we say, uh, how are you? Uh, that's a direct question. Um, now, in Latin, um, direct questions um, are interesting in that there are words that sometimes are cueing the kind of answer we expect. So there's a particle that you can add to the end of a, of a word, usually an, a verb, the particle ne. And when we have that particle attached to the end of a word, usually a verb, it asks a, a yes or no 
it expects, I'm sorry, it expects a yes or no answer. Um, uh, are you going to school? Question. Could be yes, could be no. We would put a nay on the end of the verb going, and that would make it a yes or no question. Now, if we are expecting an affirmative answer, we introduce, often in Latin, the sentence by a particle non plus ne nonne. Take a look at that in letter A under 137. When an affirmative or a yes answer is expected, um, then you normally or very often at least will introduce the question by this particle nonne. Take a look at the example. Nonne Christus iterum venturus est. Is Christ not going to come again? Or and we expect yes. Or as in English sometimes we say, Christ is going to come again, isn't he? Uh, in English, we have to kind of do a periphrasis like that. Um, you're certainly going to uh, church today, aren't you? You expect a yes answer. You would introduce that in Latin with the particle none. Notice uh, he translates it, is it not the case that Christ is going to come again? Um, but we might just say Christ is going to come again, isn't he? Uh, none. Okay. Now, just like we have a particle that introduces a question, a direct question that we are expecting an affirmative answer to, we have one, a particle that will introduce a question that we expect a negative answer to. Uh, and that particle is num, N-U-M, or numquid, N-U-M-Q-I-I-Q-U-I-D. And um, he doesn't mention num, but of course, uh, I'm not ex especially uh, appreciative of why not, because num is the normal Latin uh, word that introduces uh, a negative expectation in the answer. Um, uh, but numquid also is used that way. Uh, it could be perhaps that in ecclesiastical or later Latin, numquid is the preferable uh, word that introduces such a question. Um, at any rate, that's a sign that a negative answer is expected. And if you look at page 224 on the top, we have the example, numquid paulus hierosolimis interfectus est. Paul wasn't killed in Jerusalem, was he? Uh, again, in English, we usually do these negative and affirmative answer or questions uh, when we have an expectation of a negative or affirmative uh, answer, we do it with a sort of periphrasis. Uh, Paul wasn't killed in Jerusalem, was he? No, of course not. We expect that answer. Um, and he translates uh, secondarily, it is not the case that Paul was not, or is it not the case that Paul was not killed in Jerusalem? That's, that's a little uh, too paraphrastic in English for my taste. I think we just would, when we see that numquid paulus, we would say, Paul wasn't killed in Jerusalem, was he? Uh, and we'd expect a negative answer. Again, that's not a very difficult um, uh, piece of grammar at all. Um, it's uh, simple to remember that in Latin, you can express a question simply with a question mark. 
Of course, the Romans didn't use question marks, but we do in our books. Or you can put a nay on the end of a word, and that expects a yes or no answer. You can introduce a question by none, that expects a yes answer. Or you can introduce a word by num or numquid, the sentence by num or numquid, and that expects a negative or no answer. Okay, so that's that little piece of grammar. And uh, then if you take a look on page uh, 224 at the bottom, uh, again, another tidbit of grammar that Collins adds are donek and dum clauses. Um, donek and dum can mean uh, while or as long as. Um, dum, uh, with the subjunctive normally, can also mean until. And as he points out in ecclesiastical Latin, um, you will see clauses introduced by donek and or dum, either in the indicative or the subjunctive, uh, with no difference in meaning. Um, often in, in classical Latin, when dum means while, uh, it's mostly with the indicative, and when it means until, this is dum now, dum uh, plus the subjunctive, usually means until, and we call that the anticipatory subjunctive. But in later Latin, those usages uh, get blurred, and you don't find them as regularly used as much in the same way as they are in classical Latin. So just remember that donec or dum can mean until or while, and um, you will see them both with the indicative or the subjunctive. You can take a look at your examples there on page 225. Until Paul returned, donec or dum paulus radiit fratres erant mesti. His brothers were sad. The brothers were sad. Um, donec, next sentence, donec or dum vita es spes es. Yes, this is a famous uh, uh, expression. While there is life, there is hope. Um, you might have heard the other one, dum spiro spero, while I breathe, I hope, yes, and so on. So um, take a look here uh, at the next one, misam non incipiemus dum antistes adveniat. This is a nice example of the anticipatory subjunctive with dum. We will not begin mass incipiemus, non incipiemus misam, dum until antistes, the bishop, adveniat. And notice we have the subjunctive arrives. Um, but then in the, and then the next sentence, uh, they met Peter, ocurrerunt, uh, plus the dative, which is common with that verb, dum in via ambularent, while they were walking on the road. And we see ambularent there in the subjunctive. So dum and donut clauses, again, not anything too difficult to be concerned about. Just be aware that they will introduce clauses, meaning uh, while, or as long as, or uh, until, and you will see them with both the indicative and subjunctive moods following. Now, that takes care of what I would consider sort of the tidbits or the minor um, uh, pieces of grammar that are contained in Unit 26. But now we're going, to, uh, we're going to explore in greater detail and with more care um, what I consider to be the most important 
part of this unit, and that is a, a construction that we call in Latin indirect questions. Before we do that, we see that on the in the beginning of the chapter, on page 222, um, Collins introduces to you the formation of the perfect subjunctive. Now, I hope you remember that when I taught you the subjunctive several uh, units ago, I taught you all four, uh, the formation of all four tenses of the subjunctive. He, Collins chose in his presentation to do it tense by tense. We did it all at once. Remember, we did the present with we hear a friar liar. We talked about the imperfect as the infinitive form plus the verb, uh, verbal endings. And we did then the uh, pluperfect, and we did the perfect also. If you remember uh, all of those formations, um, there won't be a problem. Remember, they're presented to you in the back of the book in the morphology section. Today, Collins uh, presents the perfect subjunctive. And that formation, remember, is very simple. I will review it for you. The perfect subjunctive is formed from the third active. The perfect active subjunctive is formed from the third principal part, laudo, laudare, laudavi, drop the I, and add an infix, E-R-I, eri, and then add M-S-T, M-U-S-T-I-S, and N-T. Another way of remembering it is that it looks exactly like the future perfect, um, yes, the future perfect indicative, except in the first person. Laudavero, laudaveris, remember the future perfect. The perfect active subjunctive looks exactly like that, except the first person singular is laudaverim. So either way, how you want to remember it, um, it has that airy infix and the endings. And so you see it there. Uh, every conjugation is formed the same way. You go to the third principal part, drop the I, add the infix E-R-I, and then the endings M-S-T, M-U-S-T-I-S, and N-T. So there you see laudaverim, laudaveris, laudaverimus, laudaveritis, laudaverit. And it looks as the, the box says there, and Collins in the box, these forms are largely identical with those of the future perfect indicative. Context will help to distinguish them. Indeed, it will. Um, the perfect subjunctive will be used mostly in subordinate clauses uh, that call for the subjunctive. Now, uh, the passive is just what you'd expect. We talked about that formation also at an earlier time. Remember, the uh, perfect passive indicative is formed from the fourth principal part, laudatus aum, plus the verb to be in the present tense, sum ss sum sesta sum. Well, you would think, of course, logically, that the perfect passive subjunctive would be formed in the same way, but the verb to be would turn into the subjunctive. And that's exactly what we have here, laudatus aum, and then we have sim, sis, sit, simus, citus, and sint. For all conjugations, the fourth principal part plus the subjunctive present of the verb to be of sum, which is sim, sis, sit, simus, sita, sint. Okay, so now you've been taught and now have had in review all four tenses of the subjunctive. Remember, the subjunctive does not have 
future tenses, okay? In, in and of themselves, they are not future. We're going to talk about this in a minute. They have, there are four tenses, um, present, imperfect, perfect, and pluperfect. And we have both active and passive forms of those. Again, I will urge you to check the back of your book in the morphology section. There are plentiful examples fully conjugated for you of all, of, of all conjugations, verbs in all conjugations, in the uh, subjunctive, active and passive. So this is reviewed for you. And also, review, uh, I would like you uh, to, to review uh, something that we talked about earlier, which is very important for this lesson, and that is the sequence of tenses. Now, if you don't remember that, we'll, re we'll um, remind you, take a look on page 185. Turn back on page 185. And at the bottom of 185... There is a chart, okay? And we talked about this chart. We talked about how it's operative in almost all Latin subordinate clauses that require subjunctive mood, okay? And let's just review how that chart works. Take a look at the chart on page 185. It's uh, laid out nicely there for you. Notice that on the left-hand side, we have in in large uh, capital letters, independent clause. In other words, that's the main verb of the sentence, the independent clause. On the right side, we have subordinate clauses. Now, on the left side, in independent clauses, we have two categories, primary and secondary. The primary category, the top half of the chart, if you will, if you drew a line between one and two across, you'd see the top half of the chart Primary tenses are present, future, and future perfect. I repeat, present, future, and future perfect. The perfect can be included when it has that sense of completed action, but action that continues into the present time. Like, I have come, I have come to know, therefore I know. When it's used in that sense, in the Greek perfective uh, sense, then it's considered a primary tense. But for most of our uh, cases, we will see a tense that is present, future, or for future perfect. Now, in a sentence that has a main verb in a primary tense, when a, when a subjunctive or subordinate clause is introduced, there are two time relationships. If the verb in the subordinate clause is contemporaneous or subsequent, that means at the same time or subsequent to, future time to the main verb, then we use the present subjunctive. And you see that in your chart. If the verb in the subordinate clause is prior time or time before, the main verb, the verb in the main clause, then you need to use the perfect subjunctive. Okay? Now, shift everything and move down into the secondary tenses. If your main verb is one of these tenses, imperfect, the simple perfect tense, or the pluperfect, 
that means something like I was loving, I loved, I had loved. Okay, one of those verbs, the, one of those tenses, if your main verb is one of those tenses, and you have a subordinate clause which requires a subjunctive, if the subordinate clause is the same time, contemporaneous, or future time, subsequent, to the main verb, then the imperfect subjunctive is used. On the other hand, if it's prior time to the main verb, or before the main verb, in that case, you use the pluperfect subjunctive. So, you, your chart can work two ways. The first thing is to recognize what tense your main verb is, your independent clause, and then to realize what tense of the subjunctive you have in the subordinate clause, and that will tell you the time relationship, whether it's contemporaneous or subsequent or prior to the main verb, okay? Now, we also talked about um, sequence of tense in terms of an easy clause like a purpose clause. And remember, we said, uh, for an example, I am going to the store in order to buy milk. Well, you can see the time relationship there, can't you? I am going to the store. We're in primary sequence, right? We're in present tense. I am going right now. I am going to the store in order to buy milk. What's the time relationship of the buying milk to the going to the store? Well, it logically has to be subsequent, right? Or time after. You're now going to the store in order to buy milk. That action of the subordinate clause, and it's always subordinate clause to main clause, that action in the subordinate clause is subsequent or after the main clause. You have to get to the store first to buy the milk. So I'm going to the store in order to buy milk. There we would use the present subjunctive, right? Um, and we change that into the past or in the secondary tense. I went to the store to buy milk. Then we would use the imperfect subjunctive. I went to the store yesterday in order to buy milk. It is still, um, the time relationship is still subsequent to the main verb, but our main clause has moved into the secondary tense, the secondary sequence. That's why we're down in the bottom half of the chart. Okay, now I wanted to review that chart for you and that sequence of tense um, explanation because the, the most important grammatical point in Unit 26 is that of a construction called indirect question. And you see that on page 224. So you can turn back to 224. And we'll talk for a minute about indirect questions, right? Now, and in, we all know what a direct question is. What if I said uh, the question, what is he doing? That's a direct question. What is he doing? What is John doing? Um, oh, he's making his bed, whatever. Okay. I can make that what we call in grammar an indirect question by introducing it with a introductory word, generally a word that is one of asking, saying, knowing, and so forth. So I can say, uh, they, they asked, they are asking what John is doing. These people here are asking what John is doing. And now it becomes an indirect question. Do you see how that works? Direct question, what is John doing? 
these people are asking what John is doing. Indirect question. Okay? So when we have an introductory word that introduces a question, and the question, the introductory uh, word will generally be one of asking or thinking or knowing, some such word like that. And then there will be an interrogative word that introduces um, the, the indirect question. They ask what John is doing. What in English, right? What John is doing. Okay. They ask what he is doing. Um, that will be an indirect question. And you can guess that in Latin, the majority of the time, and in classical Latin, it's virtually all of the time, the indirect question clause, the clause, the subordinate clause, is put in the subjunctive. Now, in ecclesiastical Latin, it is normally in the subjunctive, but there are occasions when it will be used in the indicative. Um, if an original indicative of a direct question uh, is used, it can be expressed in the indicative. Um, don't worry about it. It will occur. But primarily and normally, the subordinate clause in an indirect question will be placed in the subjunctive. And now, this is where our sequence of tense chart comes into play. I want to give you uh, an example that's not in the book, but I think it'll be a little clearer. Um, so I hope you have your pens or pencils handy. I want you to take this down and think about it as we work through this, showing you how the sequence of tense works. Okay, so if we have the, if we have the indirect question, they ask what he is doing, okay? They ask or they are asking what he is doing. You can write that out. You can jot it down. They ask or they are asking what he is doing. Now, what we've just reviewed for you on your sequence of tense chart should give you a, not just a hint, but a, a pathway to figuring out what subjunctive will be used in that sentence. They ask or they are asking what he is doing. The main verb is what? They ask. Is that primary or secondary? Well, that's a primary tense, right? It's the present. They ask or they are asking. That's happening right now. Okay. They ask what he is doing. Now, the, the uh, subordinate clause, what he is doing, is an indirect question, right? It's no longer direct. What is he doing? It's an indirect question. They ask what he is doing. So we need an interrogative word, what, which is quid. And then we need to use the verb do, which is faccio, right? And we need to figure out what subjunctive it would be in. Well, what is the time relationship of his doing to their asking? They ask what he is doing. Doing is the same, roughly the same time as the main verb. So according to our sequence of tense chart, we're in the primary sequence, the top half of the chart. What subjunctive should we use to show contemporaneous time to the main verb? The present subjunctive. That's how your chart works. So in Latin, the translation of that sentence would be rogant, rogo rogare, they ask, rogant, right, N-T, they are asking, quid, Q-U-I-D, what? 
and then he is doing. We need the present subjunctive of faccio, which is faciat. We hear a liar friar. Remember, ia is the sign of the third io conjugation in the subjunctive present. So, rogant quid faciat. They are asking what he is doing. Same time as the main verb. Now, what happens if I change the tense of the subordinate verb in English? They ask now what he did yesterday. They ask now what he did yesterday. They ask today. They are asking now what he did. Notice the time relationship of the subordinate clause, what he did, is now prior to the time of the main verb. They are asking. They are asking what he did. Now, according to your chart, you're still in the top half of the chart, primary sequence, because your main verb is rogant. They are asking. They ask. Present tense. But now the time relationship of the subordinate to the main is prior time. Your chart tells you that you need the perfect subjunctive to show prior time to the main verb in the primary sequence. So the Latin would be rogant quid fecerit. Fecerit from fe facio facere feci. Remember? And then you're ending erit. Fecerit. Rogant quid fecerit. They ask what he did. They are asking what he did. Now, let's take it a step further. What happens if we change the tense in the subordinate clause again? They are asking, or they ask, what he will do. Now, in English, what is the time relationship of the will do to the asking? Well, it's time subsequent, isn't it? They are asking now what he will do. They're asking now, today, what he will do tomorrow. Okay, if we look at our chart, we know our chart. Ah, we say we are in the primary sequence, the top half of the chart. It's a primary tense, the main verb. They are asking. But we need to show subsequent time or time after the main verb, right? What he will do. The time relationship of what he will do is subsequent to the asking. Now, according to our chart, we would again use the present subjunctive, wouldn't we? Because the, according to the sequence of tense chart, the subordinate clause uses the present subjunctive to show contemporaneous or subsequent time to the main verb. I hope you're following this. So, Latin would have to use faciat again, right? Well, that presents the Romans with a bit of a problem, doesn't it? Because the sentence, rogant, they are asking, quid, what, faciat, present tense, what he is doing, could mean they are asking what he is doing, or theoretically it could also mean they are asking what he will do. So the Romans themselves, being intelligent people, said, well, we've got a problem here because we have an ambiguity. How do we get around that? There is no future subjunctive, right? Well, the Romans 
created in a sense one by forming that paraphrastic form that we've seen before. As a matter of fact, we saw it in a couple sentences in the last lesson, but we've seen it earlier in our chapters. And that is, they take the future active participle, which is the fourth principal part of most verbs, and add urus um to it, and then they use the paraphrastic form, adding the subjunctive, present subjunctive, simsisit simasita sint, to that form. That is the so-called, sometimes you'll see it in grammar books, the so-called future subjunctive. Uh, Collins doesn't call it that. There is no real future subjunctive, but the Romans form one out of two words in order to stop the ambiguity. Okay? So, let's think about this now one more time. We want to say in English, they ask or they are asking today what he will do in order to distinguish from the present, they ask what he is doing, they will form this so-called future subjunctive, a paraphrastic form, taking the future active participle plus the verb to be in the subjunctive. This in Latin, if you think about it, will be rogant, again, the same, same verb, they ask, quid, what? And now the verb, facturus sit, facturus sit. From facio, remember facio, facere, feci, factus aum. We take factus aum, add the urus ending, which is the future active participial ending, and then the verb to be in the subjunctive, sit, sim, sis, sit, in the present subjunctive. We form that participle with the subjunctive verb, and that's how the Romans will distinguish a future action in the primary sequence the so-called made-up, really, future subjunctive. So, rogant quid facturus sit. Now, let's review that in the primary sequence. We want to say, they ask what he is doing, showing same time as the main verb. Rogant quid faciat, present subjunctive. Now we want to show prior time to the main verb. They ask what he did yesterday. Rogant quid fecerit, perfect subjunctive. Now we want to show future time to the main verb or subsequent time to the main verb. They ask what he will do. Because the chart would call for the present subjunctive in the same way it did for contemporaneous time, the Romans create this so-called future subjunctive or this paraphrastic form rogant quid facturus sit. Okay, now I hope that's made some sense. Now let's take it one step further. Let's change the time of the main verb to the simple past and see what happens according to our sequence of tense chart. If you've got the sequence of tense chart etched into your brain as you should, you will know that we will shift everything downward on the chart. Let's, let's change it in English. They asked, this is all happening yesterday in the past, they asked what he did. Now take that sentence in English. They asked what he did. Both actions are in the past. The doing 
even though it's in the past, is roughly contemporaneous with the asking, even though they're both in, they're both in the past, right? Yesterday. They asked yesterday what he did yesterday. Okay, now, according to your sequence of tense chart, they asked is a secondary tense. Therefore, you are in the bottom half of the chart to show contemporaneous, roughly contemporaneous time to the main verb, we need in the secondary sequence, the imperfect subjunctive. If you check your chart on page 185, you will see that you need the imperfect subjunctive, okay? So in Latin, we now change the main verb to rogaverunt, rogaverunt. I should do my accent right, rogaverunt. Roga verunt. Remember, erunt ending is the third person plural ending of the perfect tense. Roga verunt. Rogo, rogari, rogavi. Roga verunt. They asked, quid, quid what? He was doing or what he did. Faceret. Our imperfect subjunctive formed from facio, facere. Remember the formula for that active imperfect subjunctive is to take the infinitive and add the endings. Facere, add the T. Faceret. F-A-C-E-R-E-T. Rogaverunt quid faceret. They asked what he did. Okay, that's uh, a secondary sequence verb, a secondary verb in the main clause, followed by an imperfect subjunctive to show same time as the main verb. Now, what if we say in English, they asked what he had done? Aha. Now, we're still in past time in the main verb, aren't we? We're in secondary sequence. They asked. But now, what's the time relationship to the the, uh, of the subordinate clause to the main verb? They asked what he had done. Notice in English, had done shows prior time to the main verb. They asked yesterday what he had done last week. They asked yesterday what he had done the week before, what he had done. Now remember or take a look at your chart again on page 184 and where, when we're in the secondary sequence in the independent or main clause to show prior time to the main verb, we need to use the pluperfect subjunctive, right? The pluperfect subjunctive. So, uh, in order to form the pluperfect subjunctive of the verb faccio, remember what we do. We go to the third principal part, feci, add the infix isse, isse, which is also the perfect active infinitive, fecisse, and then we add the ending, t, fecisset, f-e-c-i-s-s-e-t, fecisset. So the whole sentence would read in Latin, rogaverunt. Quid fecisset. They asked what he had done. The doing is prior to the time of the main verb. The main verb is a past tense. Therefore, we're in secondary sequence on the bottom half of the chart on page 185. And you see to show prior time to the main verb, the Romans will use the pluperfect subjunctive. Now, finally, what about this sentence in English? They asked what he would do. Now, the asking is still in the past. Maybe it happened last week. They asked last week what he would do. But the time relationship of the 
sub, uh, the subordinate verb to the main is time subsequent or after the main verb. Even though the whole action is in the past, his doing would be subsequent to their asking. They asked what he would do. Now again, remember we had that same problem uh, in our Latin uh, sequence of tense chart, uh, the ambiguity, because uh, in a, in a uh, sentence that is introduced by a past tense or a secondary tense in the main clause, we need the imperfect subjunctive for both contemporaneous and subsequent time. But if we do that, we have no way of distinguishing the, the Latin sentence. We would have no way of distinguishing the Latin sentence that meant they asked what he did and they asked what he would do because we'd be using the imperfect subjunctive. So the Romans create this paraphrastic tense. And here, how do they do it? They use the perfect active participle again, facturus, but this time, their verb, instead of being the present subjunctive, simsisit, like it was uh, for the formation uh, in the primary sequence, they use smssset, which is the imperfect subjunctive of the verb to be. So, in order to say they asked what he would do, they asked last week what he would do this week, right? still subsequent time to the main verb. We need uh, distinguishing tense, and to form that, the Romans take facio, facio, factus aum, make it a participle, facturus, future participle, and then add sm, ss, esset, facturus esset. Two words, f-a-c-t-u-r-u-s, esset, e-s-s-e-t, facturus esset. They ask what he would do. So the tenses, uh, the sequence of tense in the secondary sequence is uh, the following. Let's review it. Rogaverunt quid faceret. They ask what he did. Imperfect subjunctive. Rogaverunt quid fecisset. They ask what he had done. Pluperfect subjunctive to show prior time the main verb. And then, rogaverunt facturus esset, quid facturus esset, they ask what he would do. This formation of a paraphrastic tense using the future active participle and the verb to be. So, that's how indirect questions work. Now, let's take a look back at page 224, Collins covers this very cursor, cursorily, uh, and I've gone into great detail because I wanted you to understand the sequence of tense, which will be important not only for indirect questions, but for other subjunctive clauses that we are still going to learn. Take a look at um, section 138 and the example in B when he shows the subjunctive, which is the primary. Uh, you'll see that more, the, the subjunctive more in indirect questions than you will the indicative. So we have a direct question there. Quare Paulus Romam iit. Why, quare means why here, why did Paul go to Rome? Iit. That's the perfect tense of the verb to be, right? Ao. Ee, iit. Why did Paul go to Rome? 
Now we'll make it into an indirect question. The disciple is asking why Paul went to Rome. Now take a look at that sentence and see how it works. Discipulus rogat. Disciple is the subject. Rogat, there's our verb, and it's in the present tense, isn't it? Rogat. So now we're in the um, now we're in the top half of the chart, the primary sequence. Our main verb is a primary verb, present tense. The disciple is asking or asks. Now we have our indirect question. Quare Paulus Roma, and notice the verb now changes into the perfect subjunctive because we're in the primary sequence, but we're showing prior time to the main verb. The disciple is asking why Paul went to Rome. He's asking now why Paul went to Rome last week. That action is prior to the main verb, and in the sequence of tense uh, chart, that demands the perfect subjunctive e eriet. There you have it. So um, he talks about having a retained indicative. As I mentioned, this can happen. It doesn't happen as often as you'll see the subjunctive. But if it's a retained indicative, you'd have no problem, of course. The discipulus rogat quare paulus romam iet. The disciple is asking why Paul went to Rome. Iet, notice that's the indicative. Um, and uh, you'll see that. But, but usually you'll see the subjunctive. Okay. So that was the tricky part of this particular unit. And I wanted to spend a considerable amount of time reviewing the sequence of tense chart, which will become very much operable in indirect questions and in other subjunctive clauses, which will be forthcoming. So I wanted to spend a lot of time on that to make sure to go over it very carefully, step by step, as I did with that practice sentence that I created for you. I hope that you were able to follow that. If not, please try to reread it, study it. I think it will be uh, clear to you. Uh, and as we have more and more practice with it, um, we will point out the grammatical points. We will point out the sequence of tense so that you'll be able to understand. Um, now, let's take a look uh, at what we'll do for our homework. On pages 228 uh, and following, um, the first thing I'd like you to do uh, are the drills. Um, we have drills, uh, Roman numeral number one, on indirect questions, and we also have drills, Roman numeral two, on the use of quiz quid, the interrogative pronoun. Um, those are short sentences, but I think that's good practice. So let's run through those. We'll do those quickly. And now for the uh, exercises. And um, going forward, rather than simply assigning to you the evens or the odd sentences, I'm going to now, because they're getting more and more numerous and more and more uh, complicated in certain ways, I'm going to pick out those sentences that I think uh, will best uh, give you drill and practice and are, and are those that, are, that uh, really uh, illustrate in, in, a, in, a, in the best sort of way what we're trying to teach. Um, and we'll, we'll, so we won't just have evens and odds. Um, I will now name for you the sentences I want you to uh, do for your homework. So please 
take out a pen or a pencil and circle the number that I, uh, that I tell you here now in this list. Um, so here are the ones we will do. Number one, three, five, nine, 12, 13, 15, 16, 19, 21, 24, 25, 26, 30, 31, 32, 35, 36, 38. One more time. 1, 3, 5, 9, 12, 13, 15, 16, 19, 21, 24, 25, 26, 30, 31, 32, 35, 36, and 38. Of course, that doesn't preclude you from doing the others for practice, but those are the ones that we will do uh, on our next recording uh, of our homework exercises for this unit. And I'd also like you to do the reading, number one, The Last Supper, as understood by Paul. It's a short passage. I think you'll be fairly familiar with it, and I think it's a nice one to read. So you have the reading, number one, and uh, those sentences that I've uh, outlined for you, as well as the drills, number one and two. I will be back with you midweek or so um, with a new uh, recording uh, that will go through all of those exercises and sentences and catch you up on anything that might be confusing in them. So I hope that this was um, uh, a clear lesson. It's somewhat complicated. Uh, it's an important lesson, particularly um, the sequence of tense chart and how it's applied in indirect questions, because this will pertain to other subjunctive uh, clauses as we move forward. So uh, work hard on this. And remember, as always, if you have any questions, don't hesitate to drop me an email at may at stoloff.edu. And I'll be happy to answer any questions that you have, either concerning this homework or any other things related to Latin. So my best wishes for a good day and a great week. And we'll speak again with you soon. Bye-bye.